You're listening to the Option Alpha podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. Hey everyone, this is Kirk here again from OptionAlpha.com, working every single week to make this the most popular podcast offered online and in iTunes because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you make smarter trades. So thanks so much for tuning in today, and we've got a really special guest today. This is our first interview that we're going to be publishing, and we've recorded, or I've recorded about eight of these already, and they're going to be awesome. And I wanted to start off this kind of interview series, and they're not all going to be back-to-back, but I want to start off with a guy who I think is just a great guy that I've known for a long time. He was a former member here at Option Alpha and has really progressed in just his trading and is now out on his own, which is fantastic, and and doing it very successfully, all while working a full-time job. And what's so cool about his story is that he realizes already that you don't have to have or do exactly what everyone else does. So he has his strategies, he has the things that he looks at, and he does things that fit his trading style. And it's such a great intro for us in this kind of interview series as we look at different traders and how they kind of interact uh, with the markets and what their style is and how they go about things. And it's not always the same thing that I believe in, but that's good because it helps us all learn and get a different perspective. And that's why I want to have a lot of these people on the podcast. So as always, if you guys have any comments or questions for this show, please go to optionalpha.com slash show 16. That's just the number 16. Again, optionalpha.com slash show 16. We'll have all the links for Henrik's information and how you can get in touch with him. Uh, he runs a blog at thelazytrader.com where he you know, kind of posts his, his market comments and some trades that he does publicly on the website. So it's really cool. You can check it out again, thelazytrader.com. And again, if you guys haven't had a chance, I would really appreciate it if you head on over to iTunes and write us a review and a rating. We've gotten so many reviews and ratings, but it really helps kind of continue the momentum. So if you've listened to a couple shows or if you haven't done that, please take a couple minutes and do that. It really helps us again, just kind of reach more people and get this information out to as many traders as we can. So let's get right into it. Hey, all right. Thanks everyone for joining us on the call today. And we have Henrik on the line. Henrik, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to you for having me. Okay, sounds good, man. Well, like like I told everyone in the intro here, you've been running a website over at the Lazy Trader and have been trading now for a couple of years. And we've been, you know, exchanging emails off and on for a couple of years now. And, and I know that, you know, I know you well, you know me pretty well. And so um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is kind of interview you, talk about what your trading style is and the subs that you look for and the things that you look for. So, um, so if you don't mind, let's get into this by just giving everyone just a little bit of background on who you are and how you got started in trading and kind of, you know, a little bit about your history. Sure. Um, I'm a software developer by profession. I was uh, graduate. I graduated in Cuba. I came here to Canada in 2009 and I was always really interested about the, in the markets. In, in 2008, I grabbed the book on, on the markets and it was really, really frustrating, extremely frustrating to to see all that magic happening and, and, and not having the chance to trade the markets because in Cuba, obviously, you don't have uh, the ability to do that. Right. So I came here to Canada in 2009 and the first thing that I did was I traded Forex, um, which is the dirtiest of all industries just because of its nature. It's not regulated and 
just because of all the automated robots that are out there that are just curve fitted and, and done through the work. So I got tired of all that. Uh, and in 2011, I signed up for Option Alpha. And it was the first time that I saw profitable trading really happening in front of my eyes. Right. Gotcha. And, I didn't, and everyone knows I didn't pay you to say that, right? <laughs> oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all, not at all. Uh, but, but it's the truth. I, I signed up for your newsletter and for another one, and they were both based on selling options. And that, that was the first time that I saw real profitable tra uh, trading and, and possibly long-term sustainable, you know? Right. And uh, I've been running the website since 2010, back when I wasn't profitable at all. At all. I was actually pretty frustrated with, with trading, and it was a way to voice my concerns. And initially, I was just... Uh, you know, uh, talking about scams and people getting ripped off more than my strategies or anything because I didn't have a strategy at all. I wasn't profitable at all. Right, right. So when it when we talk about, you know, first getting into options trading, what do you think was, so how did you first, I know you signed up at Option Alpha, which is great, but that's, a, you know, we can kind of talk about like your strategy. So what were you looking for as far as, you know, getting into options trading, as far as strategies that you were trying to use and kind of what were the roadblocks that you started to see as you got trading? Like, what were the things that were prohibiting you from being successful? Um, well, I believe at, at the beginning it was uh, mainly trading without without an edge. And, and by that I mean just entering trades, getting in and out of the market without clear, clear signals, without having a clear edge. And that was the first thing. The second thing I would say was having a full-time job which kind of became frustrating because because I knew I would still need the full-time job for, for a while. So I decided to look for something that I could trade without having to be glued to the screen 24 hours a day. So I wanted something lazier, something less active, less active, like two or three trades a month, three, four trades a month, um, out of the money selling options. And that, that was the style that really fit my, my lifestyle. I, I would probably like to be more active than I am, but uh, it's just my conditions. It, it, I, I just can't do it. And I, and I believe most people uh, are in the same, on the same boat. Like right. most people have a full, full-time gig, but uh, with my experience, I can tell you, you don't really need to be, you know, a full-time trader. You can have uh, decent returns, make your money slowly grow over time. Um, even with a full-time job, but you don't really need to be glued to the to the screen 24 hours a day. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So you're still working a full-time job, right? I am. Okay. So tell people, because this is a question I get so often is, Kirk, how do I, you know, work a full-time job and trade options? So what do you, what are, what's kind of your system for checking the market and, you know, monitoring positions with a full-time job? And in addition to that, do you have any tips for people on, how to place trades when maybe you're not able to, you know, watch the market during the day. So, you know, kind of what's that process for you since you do have a full-time job that you're working? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I usually do is every evening when I come home, I, I look at the charts and I, I enter mainly three type of trades. Okay. Uh, credit call spreads, you know, selling, selling calls out of the money credit put spreads, and sometimes iron condors. Gotcha. Now, you 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 might have different ways to exit those trades. And, and for some people, it's, well, I received twice. the, the I, I'm, I'm losing twice the credit I originally received. For some people, it's, 
you know, I'm playing small enough that I'll let it, I'll, I'll let the probabilities play out entirely. Right. Um, for some people, it is the, the deltas. Um, for, for some people, it's probability of being in the money, which is similar to delta. Right. So what I do is, for example, if I have, um, if I sold puts out of the money, um, I usually sell them at the 10% probability of being in the money. Okay. So that's a pretty standard practice, I believe. So about a so about a 10, 10 delta. About on the 10 short, deltas. Right. Ex okay. Exactly. About 10 deltas out of money. And then I immediately try to predict when those when that spread will reach the 30% probability or the 30 deltas. Okay. So I looked at the at the at the puts that have the 30% probability right now, and I see how far are they from the put that I played, the ones that I sold at 10% probability. Right. Let's say it's a 50-point difference, and I say, well, if the market falls 50 points from here, then the puts that I sold at 10% probability will probably be around 30% probability. Of course, I give myself some cushion forever because on the way down, volatility expands, so the market doesn't really have to go down by those many points in order for my puts to reach 30%. Sure, but so, it's a it's a it's a, a guidepost or a road marker for it, you to use. Exactly, it's a guideline it's better than having nothing, right? Right. And it works especially well on the call side that that estimation because on the call side volatility is not expanding. But but we're talking about the puts. So I would say like back to the example uh, 50 point difference between the 30% probability strike and the 10% probability strike. But I know it's on the put side so I say well I'm not gonna wait for 50 points. I'll, I'll do 35 points, and and at 35 points, I set up an alert. And this will vary depending on the platform that you're using. I use uh, Thinkorswim, right? So I just go to the Market Watch tab and I type my symbol, and I create an alert. I say if the the index or whatever the instrument you're trading reaches this price, please send me an alert, and gotcha. that will trigger. That will send you an email. And that will also make a sound on the platform. Gotcha. Um, so that's the way I have. So I, I don't have to be looking at the screen all the time. As soon as I receive an alert, I know I'll have to go to the screen. Gotcha. That's a great tip because I think a lot of people, you know, when they get into this, they think that as soon as they make a trade, they've got to be hovering over it. You know, kind of like a parent hovers over their kids playing. And it's just not the case. And I think that's a great tip is to set up an alert on your broker platform, whether it's Thinkorswim or TradeMonster or TradeKing, whatever, so that if the stock goes down or goes up a certain percentage, it alerts you to come back in and review possibly doing something, right? Whether that's closing it, making an adjustment, exiting exactly. the trade completely. And exactly. Right. And especially right after the entry. I mean, it's very unlikely for you to have to adjust right after the entry. I mean, the markets still have to move to move a little bit. So, and, and many people have this idea that, uh, well, if you're not in the market all the time, looking at the screen, you're not trying hard enough. And right. and to me, it's really not like that. I mean, you 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 need to give your positions, you know, time to, for them to work for probabilities to play out. Gotcha. Okay, so let's talk about um, just a little bit, and then I want to talk about a specific trade that you that you did make on your blog. But let me just ask you real quick, what do you think, because you've been doing this now for a couple of years, what do you think is the conventional wisdom about trading that is plain wrong? So what do you think the thing is that most people, you know, or maybe you've even heard before when you got started as kind of conventional wisdom, you know, you've got to do this, but ends up just being completely wrong? Wow. I, over the years, I have found so many of them. Um, 
Well, I believe one of them could be, for example, let your winners run. That that's one of them. Um, everybody okay. says, you know, you gotta let your winners run, and 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 that's not totally incorrect. There are there are a lot of uh, systems throughout the history, mainly trend following systems, that uh, make a living out of big wins. You know, having a maybe seven out of 10 losers, but three or two wins that, you know, totally overcome those losses. Right. But at the same time, I would say that's not the only way of being profitable. Okay. It, and, it, as it, and as it relates to options trading, how do you think let your winners run is wrong? So what do you think is, is different when it comes to options trading? Well, obviously, the, the let your winners run mantra is based on being long options. That is, instead of selling them, you buy a call or you just buy a put. And what is wrong with that is that really nobody knows where the market is going. Not even the, the gurus on CNBC, not, not anybody. Not, nobody knows anything. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a joke of an industry and, and you're not better than anybody betting on a long call or a long, a long put and you have time decay working against you. So yes, you may have a huge winners, but you, you for sure, you're gonna have a lot of losers. Right. So, Letting your winners run, I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter how, 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 much, how, how big a win you have if you have a lot of losers. I think it's really a balance of uh, your profit factor. Right. Your, you know, yeah, you know, the dollars made on every dollar risk over the long term and not one single particular trade. Gotcha. So when it comes to the trades that you make, because you're doing a lot of premium selling strategies, that's put spreads and credit spreads and iron condors. When it comes to those trades, do you have a certain guideline that you work with as far as, you know, if you sell a iron condor for, let's say, $100 and it gets down to, say, $50 or $80 of profit, do you have a certain guideline that you will close out the trade at or do you generally, you know, kind of let it go all the way to the end? Well, I'll, I'll let you, most of the time, and and I know this might not be totally correct, but most of the time I try to take it all the way to expiration. And that's based on, I mean, up here in Canada, there is not so much competitions, competition among brokers. So we don't have so, you know, such good commission deals. Sure. So I try to mitigate my, my commissions. Um, but yeah, I mean, for sure, if, if I have a credit call spread that makes, I don't know, 75% of its max profit in just a week or two weeks, yeah, you, you just have to take it off. Right. You just so have to take it. But, but most of the time, I'll, I'll take it all to expiration. Gotcha. Okay. Well, it's good to know. And I think that that's an important point, you know, important point because we've got people from all over the world that trade options. And if you don't have a great broker that has great commissions, it might be the case where you have to let it go all the way to expiration. But I think what you said too is that if you get a big chunk of your money up front, then I think that's just smart use of your capital to you know go ahead and get rid of the trade. Because if you've got a 60-day trade, but you made all the money in the first seven days, there's no point in holding it all the way till expiration. Exactly. Although that doesn't happen all the time, but but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but not everybody has, on the other hand, not everybody has the sweet deals that you guys in the US have. So <laughs> yeah, I wish there was more, more competition here. Or maybe I should move to the US. I don't know. Hey, you should move but, to the US. Just gonna I, go downstairs, yeah. Yeah, it's just right there. That's right. That's but, right. Yeah, but I but I I totally understand and and it is true. I mean, it's it's not an opinion, it's a fact that there is gamma risk in the last week of trading and you know, there's not much more premium left. So so really you should take it prior to expiration. 
Gotcha. It's gotcha. just my particular conditions and those of many other traders around the world, like in Europe or Asia. They don't have the sweet commission deals. And these strategies of selling premium, um, especially four-legged ones like Chiron Condors, it's very, very Expensive. intensive. It's commission commission intensive. Yeah. Right. Yep. I got you. And, that's, and look, that's why I like having different people on the show because – it's so important to get different perspectives because it's not just my perspective or your, you know, we're all in this together trying to figure out, you know, how to make some money. So, all right. So let's talk about a specific trade that you actually posted on your blog. So you actually went in and I want to kind of go through step by step because I think this is where people really get a lot of value from, from this podcast is going through and talking about a specific trade that we've done kind of the whole way through and the whole thought process. So sure. you recently did a February expiration SPX, which is the main S&P 500 index. You did an exactly. iron condor on SPX. So can you kind of talk through first what the trading setup is that you saw? So like, what are the things that you saw on SPX that then allowed you to do an iron condor? Or was it just purely a, a mechanical thing that you did because it's the beginning of the month or you know whatever the case is? Well, I'll tell you what. I, I try to be as mechanical as possible, but I haven't been able to automate my trading, my options trading system 100%. And I think I, I won't be able to do it. So there's a little bit of subjectivity here. Um, I, I try to enter just credit call spreads when the markets are overbought, whatever that means for each listener, and I try to sell credit put spreads whenever the market is oversold. Sorry, credit call spreads when the markets are overbought, credit, call spread, credit put spreads when they're oversold. Right. And and then everybody measures that their own way. I have three special indicators, not, not really special, but my own indicators. Um, it's just a special configuration of stochastics. Um, McLellan oscillator, and I want to see the number of stocks trading above the 20-day moving average. That's all it is. Okay, so now, so hold on before we get keep going here, because this is an important point too, and I don't mean to sure. cut you off, but you know, a lot of people ask me, they say, you know, how do I know which way a stock is going? And and you've already said, you know, there's no way to to be 100 percent sure, and we know that. Absolutely, but, absolutely. But with your indicators, what are you kind of looking for? And you mentioned three that you have. What are you kind of looking for with those three indicators? So can you just maybe touch on those three just really quickly? Sure. I'm just looking for, um, I'm trying to gauge how much more momentum on one direction the market has. And so, for example, stochastics, if they are below 20, I mean, it it's usually means that, uh, you know, we, we're, we're kind of the the downside might be reaching, you know, its, its end. But stochastics itself doesn't tell you anything. So I go to the number of stocks trading above their 20-day moving average. If that number is below 30% historically, that mostly means that there is not much more breadth to the downside and there is way too much negativity in the markets. It's pretty hard because at that point, that's when everybody on Twitter and on CNBC everywhere is, is calling the end of the world. Right. But usually when there's those extremes of negativity, that's when that's when it's right to sell the puts. Okay. And I also look at the McLellan oscillator. I want to see below minus 150. So no single indicator is perfect, but I believe with the combination of those three, I have a little edge. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. And that's, yeah. And I think that exactly. Uh, and I agree with you hundred percent that there's no single indicator, but what I like about what you're already doing too, is that, you know, you use the three that you like. And I, I tell people all the time, you know, use two to five, you know, but don't get too caught up in the, all the indicators and technicals out there. Cause, cause you just want to see if they're all kind of, you know, 
talking the same thing? Like, are they exactly. all overbought? I've, yeah, I've seen you using, for example, the CCI, and I mean, each each person you know has his preference. Yeah. Um, but I believe the idea is that you shouldn't use twenty of them, otherwise right. you get paralyzed totally. Yep. Okay. So so, so you're using all these indicators, and you kind of figured out, all right, I'm going to make a trade in in the SPX exactly based on those indicators. So. Let's exactly. talk through, you know, first, let's talk through the the contract month that you selected because you selected February and we're in January now. But why February and not January? Kind of what's the talk? And then also strike prices. How did you select your strike prices? Sure, sure. Let's go there. So like I said at the beginning, I really prefer to sell just one side, the call or the, or the put side, depending on whether the market is overbought or oversold. But the problem is that if I wait for these three indicators to give me extreme readings, all three of them at the same time, I would only be making six or, or seven trades a year. So for that reason, when they are not all aligned, I go with an iron condor. And the reason why I went to February was because for the particular case of iron condors, I like to have you know, a lot of time premium in those options. If the market was um, overbought or if it had been uh, oversold, I would have sold credit spread only and I would have chosen January options. But because we were not there, because all the indicators were not aligned and I don't know and nobody knows when they will be, I chose to sell the iron condor. Gotcha. And, and with iron condors, I always go eight to seven weeks. I, I, I don't feel very comfortable selling um, iron condors at the six or five or four weeks or anything like that. And, and it's not that they don't work. It's just that it hasn't been my, um, I haven't had greater results with them. So I go with eight weeks to expiration. Right. So usually when we are eight weeks away from expiration, that's when I start looking uh, to enter trace in that cycle. Gotcha. So for that reason, I chose the iron condor. So the, the reason is very simple. Three indicators were not aligned. And to me, that means we were in no man's land. We were not uh, overextended, uh, neither to the upside nor to the downside. So I go with the iron condor, eight weeks to expiration. Now, the strike price selection, I usually go with a 10% probability of being in the money. That would be 10 deltas on each side. So I go to my option chain on my platform and I search for the first strike price that it, that is trading at the 10 deltas or 10% probability of being in the money. I do that for the call side. I do that for the put side. Now, there is a little caveat here, which is the support and resistance lines. And, and I understand this might be subjective for some people, but over time, I have found that support and resistance trend lines, uh, not, not only horizontal ones, but also diagonal ones, like trend channels and stuff like that. I believe the market has a tendency to respect those things. And so my first approach is just select the 10% probability options and then visualize that on the chart. Is it safely above the upper end of the resistance zone? Is your put side below the, you know, the lower end of the of the of the trend channel? Right now we're in an uptrend channel that's been lasting for three or four years. Uh, if my 10% probability options are not below or above those lines, then I try to accommodate those numbers. Okay, gotcha. So you'll so for example, and you do a great job of posting a lot of the charts on your blog too because i know that for this trade too you also posted the chart kind of showing everyone what you see at that time and it does have those trend channels that you drew in there so in this case if like let's say 
you sold some puts below the market and the 10 deltas weren't below that bottom trend channel, you might then adjust the put side down even further so exactly. that you so that you're outside of that channel. Exactly, that's exactly it. Gotcha. That's exactly right. Gotcha. Now, overall, I try to collect a certain credit. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, I was going to say, so what's what's kind of the credit that you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if I sell, for example, a five-point wide spread on the SPX, which is my most common trade, I look for around 0.80 credit. So my my margin is 4.20, and I look for a credit of at least 0.80. If that credit's not there, I'm really sorry for me, but I won't enter that trade. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great look. That's and even though you kind of said that so quick, that's such a key point because I think again, what most people do is that they just, you know, you can enter these trades and take in credit, but having some set of guidelines and saying, you know what, if it's not this, whatever that is for you, in, in your case, it's 0.8. If it doesn't reach, you know, an $80 credit or whatever the case is, then then I won't make that trade. And I think that's that's a very smart thing to do. Exactly. We're risking our hard-earned money and, and, and you really want to make it worth it. I, I just feel uncomfortable. I feel I'm being abused. So I learned to you know, pass on those trades if, if they're not there. If gotcha. the credit's not there, gotcha. yeah, I just pass. Gotcha. Smart. Okay. So we've talked about why you went for February, the strike prices you select, why you did the iron condor, which is great. Now let's kind of talk a little bit, you know, this trade obviously has been working for a little bit, so it's not February yet because we're doing this in January. So talk a little bit about if you have any type of game plan. And I know you talked about earlier in the show, you know, if it reaches you know, a certain delta, maybe a 30 exactly. delta on one side. But what would you do specifically to adjust this trade? Or would you adjust this trade if it started to go against you? Absolutely. I, I would adjust trade. I I do not let probabilities entirely play out. I do not take the trade to expiration. Just, you know, whatever happens, happens. So instead, I'm looking at this position like a hawk. And if I was playing smaller in respect with my portfolio, I would probably let it just play out, whatever it, whatever the final outcome is. But because I'm betting 10 to 15% of my capital here, I'm not willing uh, to let that happen. So I look at each spread separately, and if they reach the 30% probability of being in the money, I just close it for a temporary loss, and I deploy capital at the new 10% level. That's as simple as that. So, for example, right now on that Iron Condor, the 1875-1880 put spread, it has around a 15% probability of being in the money. So certainly a little higher than when I entered it, but still far from 30. Now, if the market keeps falling, let's say this week or next week, and it reaches the 30% probability, I would close it for a loss, but then I would deploy, I would open a new credit put spread below those numbers and it would probably in the 1700s at this point okay so i would try to make up for that loss with that new credit but at the same time i already have the call side is almost a winner at this point so that that's the idea really is to defend the trade and by defend i just mean close it open the same thing farther out of the money okay so you're rolling down that side of the trade because the market's moving against you you're going to roll down that side of the trade yeah gotcha. technically speaking that's it so now do you do anything with the other side of the trade so if the market starts moving down will you adjust closer or will you just leave that call spread that's already profitable there you know sometimes i have done that so in this case it would be for example uh, moving the call spread down 
moving the call side down. Um, but if the market is at an extreme, judging by my three indicators, I won't do it. So let's say, for example, my put side is getting hurt and I move my puts below the current price. I won't move the calls down if the markets are extremely oversold as per my three indicators, because I believe we're about to rebound at some point. So, I mean, anybody would say, well, if you're saying that your three indicators are telling you that we're extremely oversold, then why would you defend your put side? And, and the reason is, well, because nothing works 100% of the time. And even the combination of those three indicators or whichever indicator you use. So I would always, no matter what, defend the threatened part. Now, the other side, yes, you could move it down to collect more credit. But if we are already at an extreme, I won't do it because I've been hurt a few times doing that. Gotcha. Especially in the last few years with the call side, which has been so, so damn challenging. Right. Yeah. Because the market's been, you know, it goes down by 10% and then, you know, three weeks later, it's up another 15%. So, yeah, it's been very, very volatile. So, okay, great. And that's, and look, the thing is, you know, that's different than what we try to do, you know, here, but that doesn't mean that it's it's not right. I mean, it's all, you know, different solution. What I think is important here for, for everyone who's listening is that you have a, a system in place to adjust your trades. And, and again, it's not going to be the same for everybody, nor should it be, but you've got some guidelines in place that you're going to make adjustments to a trade based on the kind of road markers and guideposts that you've already set up for your system. Exactly. So, right. so uh, do you mind me asking what are you guys doing now with this type of trade? Because I, I, uh, I'm not a subscriber of Option Alpha at this point. Um, just because I thought I, I needed to do it on my own, not because I, yeah. Course, yeah. Uh, so but I, I always like to learn, so let me interview yeah. you for a little while. What, <laughs> what would you do with that trade? So, so we teach, you know, I think the biggest thing now is that we don't move down or move up the side of the market that's being tested. So in our case that we were just talking about, if, if the S&P starts going down and we've got a put spread, well, that put spread's already, you know, at jeopardy of losing. We don't want to move down that position because then that new position um, may be in jeopardy of losing as well if the market continues lower. So yeah, real, real quickly, what we do is we do adjust down the other side of the trade. So the call side, we would move closer, take in a credit, and that credit would help move our break-even point out further on the put side. But And again, that's, you know, I've heard so many different things interviewing people about how they make adjustments. And, and it's all different for everybody, yeah. but the key is is that you have something that you work with. Yeah, you have framework, and if it works for you, uh, with your approach, I believe, um, I mean, I, you just, I've thought about it for a while, but I, I think I, it's just psychology. I, I think that by reducing my range, I feel like I can play in defense from then on. Um, sure. But, but, but again, I mean, if it works for you, if it is a framework, it works for you. I like the idea of collecting more premiums, certainly. And I also understand because many times I have adjusted my position. I have moved it farther away from the money just to see the market rebound immediately. And I'm like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. Why right. did I do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I took the loss. I took the loss and I went against me. Right. So, yeah, I mean, as long as you have your framework, as long as it works for you, as long as you do some back testing, which is kind of complex. Not everybody has the resources to do that, that um, the men and the hours to do that. Right. It, it would be nice. It would be nice to do a huge back test of 20 years doing it right. with both approaches. And, and it also depends on the symbol, how, how, how volatile it is. I, I feel with SPX, I feel kind of familiar right now. I've been looking at it for so long. Right. Okay, good. Now, so, so let's get into something different too. And I know that you talked about it briefly, but 
As far as position size, so you said, and, and correct me if I'm wrong because I just heard it briefly, but you said that your position sizes that you enter because you don't trade every day. You, you know, you make you know a couple trades a month. Couple so, trades a month, right? So your position size, how much are you allocating for each strategy that you're selecting, and and how do you kind of come up, come up with that number? My target is 15% of my portfolio. Now, many people would say, "Oh, this guy is insane. He's crazy." Now. Playing 15% of my portfolio doesn't mean that I'm willing to lose 15% of one trade. The fact that I defend the trades at the 30% probability mean that usually my losses are 2 to 3% of my portfolio. Now, for many people, that is huge. For many people, they say, well, 2% 2 loss in one trade, that's unacceptable. For me, the way I look at it is, well, I'm playing just two trades a month or three trades a month. If one of them loses 2%, you know, I, I'm fine with that. Some of these positions have um, almost two months of life. So losing 2% in two months, that's the way I look at it. You know, losing 2% in two months, losing 3% in two months, rather than I'm losing 2% in, in, in one trade. Because again, I, I don't trade that often. So I use 15% of my capital just as a mechanism to obtain more credit. Gotcha. So I, that's the money I put to work. It doesn't mean I'm willing to lose all the, all that amount. Yeah, well, hopefully not, right? You're not trying, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, exactly. you're not trying to lose yeah. all that. So when it comes to, you know, making, you know, bigger type trades um, and then allocation, how is there a point at which you won't enter a new trade? So if you've, I don't know, used up a certain percentage of your portfolio in trades, what's kind of the limit to where you won't allocate more money towards the trades? Or, or do you even have a limit? You can, you can kind of go uh, yeah. the 100%. Yeah, I do have one. I, I, I like to always have some, some, some cash available for eventual adjustments that might become necessary. So it's around 70%. So okay. I, let's say I trade, let's say I make four, four different trades and I have four trades on. Then that would be approximately 60% of my capital at risk. Maybe one more trade, but it's very, very unfrequent for me to have five positions on at the same time. Okay. So yeah, that that would be actually I start getting nervous once I have three positions on I, I start getting too nervous. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so ideally less than 70% of my capital uh, put to work. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. So let's kind of and this is great that we kind of went through, you know, a whole trade. And I think hopefully that helps a lot of people that are listening to this now, is, you know, kind of your thought process on this whole trade, which is good. And look, I mean, you've been profitable doing this. So I know that I've go, you know, I've gone back and looked at, you know, a bunch of your posts and, and you're doing well doing this with your strategy, which is which is what people need to hear is that, you know, your system, even though it might be different than the next guy or the next guy, it works for you and it's been profitable for you. So when it comes to that though, let me ask you this question. It might help new people who are getting started. But when it comes to trading options and getting started, if you were to kind of go back in time and start all over again, what are the specific things that you would do different starting now, if you were to go back in time, than you did before? So like what are kind of maybe one or two things that you would do completely different than you did before? Um. Well, I would say I wouldn't be so aggressive as I was in the past. So, for example, in the past, I used to make my adjustments based on how close is the current price to my short strike. Let's say, let's say I'm I, I sold the 2190, 2195 call spread. So my short call in that position is the 2190. And in the past, I would say I will only adjust this 
when the price of the market is just five points away from penetrating my short strike price. Right. Um, that's one thing I would definitely change, and actually I, I did it. Because at that point, yes, you will get burned less frequently. Um, you will avoid a lot of adjustments. But the ones that are necessary will cost you a huge loss. So at that point, I think it's too late to you know, defend the trade at that point. That's definitely one thing that I would change. Right. Um, the other thing is is the uh, how aggressive I was. I, I was pretty aggressive. Even with my position sizes, I would take them up to 20, 25% of my portfolio. That's a no-no. I learned that with time. Right. And also how aggressive you play your strike prices. I used to play at the 20% probability of being in the money, 20 deltas. And, you know, adjustments became necessary way too frequently for me and, and for my lifestyle and my full-time job and all that. So those are the things that I would immediately change that unfortunately took me a few years and a few losses to, to realize. That's a, that's called market tuition, yeah. right? That's called stock market tuition. Yeah, yeah, sadly, gotcha. but but that's, that's, that's how it is. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that playing at a 20% probability you won't be profitable. Actually, you might be. It's just that it, was, it wasn't a fit with my you know, my, my lifestyle, my, my full-time gig with my meetings. And sometimes I would be in a meeting for two hours going crazy, looking at my cell phone, seeing where the market was going. I'm, oh my God, I need to go back to my computer, connect, you know, connect to home remotely and, and make the adjustment. Oh my God, in this meeting, let me, let me get a break and ask for, you know, I, I need five minutes to go to the washroom. I mean, it was insane. So it wasn't working. So I needed to be way less aggressive. So that's why, that's why I needed to tweak it all. Gotcha. Perfect. Well, that's awesome. And that's, that's, that's such great information for people to know is that you have to make the, the system and strategy kind of fit within your, you know, what you need. So, well, hey, man, I appreciate so much your time and being on here and sharing so much about how you make trades and your strategy. So how can people learn more or contact you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, well, first for me, it's been a pleasure to be part of the show. I've been listening to the other um podcast episodes and I, I really like the work you're doing um i feel really humbled when, when you invited me i, I i've been honored uh, so thank you thank you for for the invite of course. now ways for people to reach me they can go to the the lazy that's separated with the dashes the dash lazy dash trader.com or they can go to my twitter um which they have a link to from the website itself but it's at lazy trading they can find me there and, you know, I'm usually looking at the markets and, you know, just complaining, talking or <laughs> say, yeah, you know, gotcha. trying to take it easy with other fellow traders gotcha. having a good time as good. much as possible. Well, good. Well, thanks so much. And, and for everyone who's listening, we'll obviously put links to both of Henrik's blog and his Twitter in the show notes page when you go to optionalpha.com. Uh, so Henrik, again, thanks so much for your time today and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything. Free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com. All right. I truly hope that you guys enjoyed today's show. And like I said, you can find more out about Henrik on our blog by going to optionalpha.com slash show 16. Again, that's the number 16, optionalpha.com slash show 16. 
And we've also put up there some links to video tutorials and blog posts that are related to this topic about making sure that your strategy, you know, fits your style of trading and whether you have a, a full-time job or not. So check it out at optionalpha.com. And until next time, happy trading.